Okay, turn to Mark chapter 4, please. Mark chapter 4. We're going to read verses 21 through 34. But first, let's pray. Lord, um, thank you that you're here now. Thank you for your presence. Thank you for the ability to know you and to practice your presence and to come before you. And I, um, I want to come before you this morning, Lord, um, confessing that I need to slow down and be aware of you. I want to enter into rest and into your presence and your joy. So help me, Lord, to enjoy you right now. Help me to um, have fun in your presence and to relax in your presence and to receive what you've got. And I pray that we could do it together as a church. Thank you for this season, this Thanksgiving season. There's so much for us to be thankful for. Lord, we bring those things to our mind. May that thankfulness and gratitude continue to fuel us Keep us going, Lord. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, I'm going to read Mark chapter 4, verse 21 through 34. He said to them, do you bring in a lamp to put it under a bowl or a bed? Instead, don't you put it on its stand? For whatever is hidden is meant to be disclosed, and whatever is concealed is meant to be brought out into the open. If anyone has ears to hear... If anyone has ears to hear, let them hear. Consider carefully what you hear, he continued. With the the measure you use, it will be measured to you. And even more, whoever, whoever has will be given more. And whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. And he also said, this is what the kingdom of God is like. A man scatters seed on the ground Night and day, whether he sleeps or gets up, the seed sprouts and grows, though he does not know how. All by itself, the soil produces grain, first the stalk, then the head, then the full kernel in the head. As soon as the grain is ripe, he puts the sickle to it because the harvest has come. Again, he said, what shall we say the kingdom of God is like? Or what parable should we use to describe it? It's like a mustard seed, which is the smallest of all seeds on the earth. Yet, when planted, it grows and becomes the, lar- the largest of all garden plants with such big branches that the, birds, that the birds can perch in its shade. And with many similar parables, Jesus spoke the word to them. As much as they could understand, he did not say anything to them without using a parable. Interesting. But when he was alone with his disciples, he explained everything to them. Okay, in chapters four and five, we have a section of scripture where Mark has arranged things to emphasize the word of God or the word of Jesus. This is, um, we need to unpack this metaphor a little bit. It's become, you know, we say this all the time as Christians. The word, I read in the word, you know, those types of things. And it, become, it can become lost on us when we use it so much. But in the first part of chapter four, he explains the parable of the sower. We didn't, I didn't print it out this morning, but the gist of it is Jesus describes the farmer who goes out and he scatters seed. He scatters seed about, and depending on what kind of ground the seed falls on, that determines how well that seed will grow or how, how much crop that seed will produce. And in short, the parable is a description of the different ways people receive and process the reveal of God, the word of God. That's what we're going to basically talking about, some synonyms here, light, seed, revealing, those types of things. That's what the word of God is, namely the gospel. That's specifically what's being revealed is the gospel. Um, some of us have hard, rocky hearts. So the word never really, the the seed never really penetrates into the soil. Um, 
Others, just as birds come and eat up seed before it can penetrate the ground and germinate, so evil, Satan, comes and tries to snatch away the word of God before it has a chance to penetrate people's hearts and germinate and, and bear fruit. So the parable is a challenge to you and I, and this is really the context, the reason I'm going into this because this is the context of our passage this morning. The parable is a challenge to you and I asking what kind of soil is your heart going to be? It really is putting it to us here. Are we ready to receive and what does that look like? Where is your heart? How do we make our hearts ready to receive God's word and God's seed? All of that. If it's hard, can the Holy Spirit plow it, plow the ground? If it's rocky, can we let him take the rocks out? If it's got weeds, can we let God weed out the cares of this world so that our hearts can more and more receive the reveal, the light, the, the revelation of God? That's what we're talking about. So in our section today, Jesus is going to use three parables that illustrate how the life, um, how the life of the gospel grows in the human soul. I guess we'll put it like that. How the life of the gospel grows or is exposes or comes into the world and grows in humanity. That's the whole intent of the parables, parables that he's giving to us. So today we're going to see a few things. One, we're going to see the purpose of God's word. The purpose of God's word. That's how God, that's how Jesus uh, starts out. Uh, secondly, we're going to see the nature of God's word. In other words, how does, how does the seed, how does the gospel, how's the message, the divine revelation, how does it work out in someone's life? How does that, what's the process by once you receive the seed, what's it doing in there? What's it doing? Thirdly, um, and really interestingly, and I think this is something for us to think about that for a long time, um, the mysterious interplay between God's word and our hearts. Really, really interesting principle here that's very mysterious. A mysterious, complex interplay between your heart and the revelation of God and the word of God. Okay, that's what we're going to get into. We'll jump in. The first point that Jesus makes is that God is actively revealing himself to the world. And to get this message across, Jesus uses the metaphor of light in verse 21. Look, he says, um, is a lamp brought to be put under a basket or under, under a bed? Is it not to be put on the lampstand? Now, this metaphor of God being light is used throughout Scripture. It's used all over the place. And it's, it profoundly reveals something about God, and that is God wants to be found. God is actively revealing himself to this world. Um, one uh, scholar, um, Jack Cottrell, put it this way, that God is like jumping in our path up and down saying, I'm right here, I'm right here. Here I am. That's God's heart. That's God's attitude. So here, one thing we've got to learn right away, first of all, this metaphor tells us something about God. It also tells us something about ourselves. And we'll get into that in a second. But about God, it says that he's eager to be seen. And I want to let that sit with you for a second because I think sometimes we think of it the other way. We think of, well, maybe if I'm lucky, I'll hear from God today. Or I'll read my Bible and maybe something will jump out at me. Maybe this will be my day. And that's not the picture that God is portraying of himself in the Bible. The, the, in fact, um, there, is a, there is a philosophical or theological view of the Bible. It's called, it's called the verbal plenary view. <laughs> and in short, it means that the whole Bible is God speaking. Is God speaking. Not was God speaking or a record of God of how God has spoken in the past. It is now, all of it, that, that's the word plenary, all of it is God speaking to us. In other words, the Bible, right now, when, you, when, you, when we read it, when we're looking at it, when you read it, it has all the same revelatory power that it had when God spoke to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. Right now, you have access to that same voice, that same power. It is God speaking. If you let this sink in, it changes the way you think about God. It changes the way you think about your relationship with God. 
And here, this is what Jesus is saying. He's saying, a lamp is, brought, is, not, is not brought to be put under a basket. In other words, okay, John, the, well, I'm getting ahead of myself. What's the first thing God did in Genesis chapter 1? How did he solve the problem of darkness? He said, he didn't make the, the sun or the moon or the stars, remember? He said, let there be light. John, in his epistle, goes as far, in, John, in 1 John chapter 1, goes as far as to say, this is what was shown to us, that God is light. So his very character is revealing. It's to reveal it's to bring, and that's what you see in Genesis chapter 1. God creates, uh, he says, let there be light. And he makes the created order. And he creates mankind. And he brings mankind into this relationship with himself by which he is revealed to them. And by that knowledge, that relational knowledge, they enter into rest. It all weaves together. By a relational revealing of himself to mankind, mankind is purposed, our telos is to enter in through relational knowledge into the rest and worship of God that God himself enjoys. God is revealing himself, and the story goes on. We, um, mankind, shut the light out. In the fall, when we rebelled against God our view of God became obscured this is the part where it tells the metaphor tells us something about ourselves Um, in Acts chapter 17 Paul is talking to the Athenians and he describes mankind as groping about in the dark not that now listen not that mankind doesn't care about God it's not the picture The, the picture that Paul gives and the Bible throughout gives is that we were meant to search we are groping about in the dark. Have you ever um, had that experience? You know, where you're, where, you know, you're, you're trying to make your, you're trying to find your bed at night, and you forgot that you, that your suitcase from your last vacation is still right there in front of you, and oh, darn it, and then you trip over this, and you trip over that. That's the description of mankind that the Bible gives. That's what mankind is doing after the fall after our picture of God has been obscured, has been perverted, has been uh, warped. And sometimes, so the idea is that we're close and yet so far away. <laughs> That's the idea, isn't it? Um, I was, uh, last couple days ago, I was in Portland. There's a place in Portland called The Grotto. Anybody, have you been to that? It's really cool. It's a Catholic place and it's a place meant for peace and solitude um, it's a little on the creepy Catholic side, <laughs> and I, what I mean by they have the, you know the shrines everywhere and the, the kind of weirder type of things. Um, you know, I feel like Mary's staring at me wherever I go. But um, if you pay a little bit of extra money, there, so it's it's this cliff in the middle of Portland, and and next to this cliff is this tower, this shaft. And inside this shaft is, a, is a, an elevator. And you, you go to the top of this cliff where there's more gardens. And there's this observatory called the Meditation Room that is a really state-of-the-art modern building made of glass that hangs over the cliff. And it, and it kind of wraps around glass. And there's all these um, seats in there. And you can just sit as long as you want. And you can just be with the Lord. And the idea that they give you this little pamphlet to read, and the idea is they want you to know the presence of God to be revealed to you in nature. They want, that's why they want glass. They want you to feel like nature's coming in type of a thing, and God is, is in the created order. But one of the things that I was thinking about when I was there with the glass being there is that you, know, you could stand right up to the glass, and there's this beautiful creation all around you, and you're so close and yet so far away from it. There's this force field there between us and what this observatory was saying we want you to experience God in this way and I was thinking about this sermon I was thinking about how God reveals himself and what an apropos picture of mankind we're so close and yet so far no no hope of getting to the Lord in and of our own selves because our our view is so warped we need to reveal we need light 
And there are various ways that God reveals himself to us, that reveals himself to mankind. One is in the created order. Scholars call this um, natural revelation or general revelation. They don't call it universal revelation because if you're blind or, or deaf or you can't have access to it. But in general, God is speaking to us of his, of his attributes in, in creation. Um, but it's limited, isn't it? Um, Paul says that his invisible attributes are clearly seen in the things that were made. And then he, Paul gets specific. He says specifically things like the fact that God is eternal. You can surmise that through looking at creation because creation is not eternal. Creation is what we call contingent. It's passing away. It's, it's conditional. And if you are, you don't have to be a scientist or a philosopher. If you're just a thinking person, if you keep, you've got to know that at some point something eternal had to make those things that are not eternal. There's something non-contingent that had to have been the cause. By, very, by logic, existence itself is prior to life. It comes before life. Something had to start that. Something had to, and something that is outside of those, of those uh, physical things and yet in and through it and permeating through it. That's why most of the, well, all of the major religious theistic faiths believe in an eternal God because of creation. You can see that he's intelligent through looking at creation, can you not? You can see that there's a a system, that things are working together. You can tell that he's uh, uh, um, omnipotent, all-powerful for something to create everything Ex nihilo, everything out of nothing, that takes all power. So you can learn a lot from God or about God from looking, from just walking outside. That's why Jack Cottrell says just going outside is God saying, I'm here, I'm here. Because of the beauty. But we lose that. You can also, you can also I would argue probably, maybe controversially, but I, can, I, I think I'll argue that you can also tell that something's quite, not quite right. By looking at creation. In other words, this, is not, this place is not operating the way I think it was probably meant to operate. You can also probably tell that by looking inside yourself. I have potential that I can't reach. That's called brokenness. I have dreams that I'll never, you know, I dream of being, some of us dream of being a professional vocalist. And it's in your heart. But you don't have the art. And it'll just, it's not going to happen this side of heaven. Right? You have this dream and potential, but you know, I can't reach it. I can't do that. Some of us want to be athletes. And we just weren't, we just don't have athletic bodies. Some of us. Some of us do. Right? So you can we can tell a lot, but where natural revelation fails is that it doesn't tell us about sin in particular. Why? Because God created everything before sin. God created everything before Adam and Eve rebelled against God. Therefore, um, it's a manifestation of his glory, of his eternal power, of his intelligence, all of those things. But it's not going to specifically say, hey, the problem with this world is something called sin, and this is how we can reconcile our relationship between you and God. That's where creation, general revelation, natural revelation is going to fall short. So what? Mankind needed divine revelation special revelation and we see that God did this Hebrews chapter 1 says that God in various times and in various ways spoke to us through prophets through Abraham Isaac Jacob Moses Isaiah Jeremiah Malachi all of these prophets and all of these uh, these these uh, men and women that God chose to say something specific or Um, to use a fancy word, soteriological uh, revelation, which means something to do with God's salvation, how we can be saved, how we can reconcile that there's something called sin, that we are mankind groping about in the dark and we need an outside source to reveal God's presence to us. And ultimately, that Hebrews chapter 1 goes on to say the ultimate revelation is God's son Jesus who John who the apostle John calls the light of the world the light that's what Jesus is referring to in our 
thing. He's saying, I'm here, and I'm not here to be concealed. I am the light of the world. I am not here to be obscured. I'm here to reveal. I, I represent a God who wants to be known. I'm, so, you know, the, the picture is, uh, uh, Michelangelo's picture is apropos of, of, you know, on the Sistine Chapel up, up on the ceiling, there's God doing all the stretching and mankind's going like, like that. <laughs> and, but God's the one. We're still searching. In everything we do, we're searching. Actually, our hearts were made to search. We just find it in idols or other things, but God is out actively revealing. Do you know, point number one, do you know that God is actively revealing himself to you all the time? Not sometimes, not if you're lucky, not maybe, not every once in a while. All the time, God is revealing himself to you. And Jesus says, everyone who has ears to hear, let them hear the word. It's being spoken Anyone who has ears to hear, let them hear, including you, including me, including anybody out there. The first point that Jesus makes is that God is actively revealing himself to the world. And if we, follow, if we keep following the story forward, eventually Jesus says to us, you are the light of the world a city on a hill. Light reveals. Light shines. Light gives clarity. Light gives direction. Light clears up confusion. And we do that primarily by how we live, how we speak. But as we're living in the light, as 1 John says, as we're living in the light, we become people of the light. People of direction, people enjoying the love of God, basking in the constant reveal of the love of God. That's the idea. The love of God, it's like a heat lamp that's always on. Jude says, keep yourself, church, in the love of God. Jesus says, remain in me and I in you. That's the idea. We walk in the light. We stay in the light. And as we do that, we begin to live as people of the light. There's this extremely interesting, um, there's an eternal quality to, in other words, here's what I want to say, if I can. I didn't know quite how to say it, so I didn't write it down, which might have been a mistake, but there's this um, eternal quality to the scripture that you hold in your hand. Did you know that? There's an eternal quality to the scripture that you hold in your hand. Um, in other words, the Bible was divine revelation before it was inscripturated. The Bible was divine revelation before it was inscripturated. How do I know? Uh, somebody turn to Galatians chapter 3 and read out loud verse 8. Whoever can get there faster or use their thumbs or flip through. Galatians chapter 3, verse 8. Whoever's got it, read it out. And slow and loud. Okay, hey, stop right there. Read it again. Who foresaw? Who? Who foresaw Abraham? Say it. Did you see that? I want to let you think about that for a second. The scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, what did the scripture do to Abraham? Preached the gospel to Abraham. Okay, first of all, the scripture, Paul personifies the scripture. Paul is, he's referencing Genesis chapter 12. And in Genesis chapter 12, if you go back to Genesis chapter 12 and, and, and read the story, God speaks to Abraham. A voice speaks to Abraham. Paul is saying that voice is 
scripture. In other words, there is a force in the world called divine revelation that, is, that has been working in the world from eternity before it, it has been inscripturated and put in your hands. This is before, Abraham, this is before any of the scripture was written down. This is Abraham. Moses wasn't around yet to write it. If, we, if you believe that Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible, as I do, uh, there's huge debate on that, but um, before anyone was around to write it, Scripture spoke to Abraham. Here's, and there are so many vast implications. Here's what that means. The reveal of Jesus Christ, of the, and what, what did he do? Preached what to Abraham, Paul? The gospel to Abraham. The gospel, meaning about Jesus. Preach the gospel to Abraham. In other words, you are holding in your hand or on your device the same eternal revelatory power that came to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. Do you understand that? You have access to the same word of God, eternal revelatory power that Abraham had in Genesis chapter 12. That is powerful. How does that change the way you open your Bible and read it? It has to. It has to change the way you think about the Bible when you open it up and read it. This is God speaking, revealing. The light is on. Whoever has ears to, to, to hear and eyes to see, let him see it, let him hear it. Okay? That's what he's saying. It's powerful. And that's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, and I'm the ultimate, I'm the ultimate um, and that's why, by the way, John equates Jesus with the Word. In the beginning was the Word in John chapter 1. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. Jesus is the reveal. Jesus is the Word. And you also need to understand what this says about the Bible. The entire Bible is about Jesus. In fact, I will, just, I will go even further and I'll leave it at this and I'll move on. If you don't understand that the entire Bible is about Jesus. Every story, every character, every, um, every prohibition, every command, every narrative, every bit of history, that it's all about Jesus. If you don't understand that the entire Bible is about Jesus, not only will you, don't, will you not understand the Bible when you read it, but you, you will also read it to your own peril. The Bible will become all sorts of things that it wasn't. That it was never meant to be. Like, um, you know, like, a, like how, to, how to bake bread. You know, Ezekiel. Have you seen those Ezekiel loaf breads? You know, Ezekiel, whatever it is. If you, read, if you read that story in context, where they get that verse, it's talking about baking bread with human feces. Not making that up. Like, Serious. Yes, right. <laughs> Very good point. In other words, you can start reading the Bible thinking, oh, it's a manual about how to bake bread. Oh, it's, uh, it's going to tell me how to change the tires on my car. Oh the, oh, the Bible is this, the Bible is that. Until you understand that the Bible, or until you come into alignment with what the Bible says about itself, I'm a revealing of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm about Jesus, about the salvation of mankind and how he came to save us. Until you read the Bible that way, it's going to confuse you and you'll end up coming out with some really weird worldviews about life. Jesus comes to us saying, hey, I'm here to reveal. I am the light of the world. Don't, put, don't, don't obscure me. I'm here to shine this, this light. Okay, secondly... Um, how does this work? How does the word of God work in someone's life? What kind of power does it have? Uh, let's read verse 26 through 32. He also said, this is what the kingdom of God is like. A man scatters seed on the ground. Night and day, whether he sleeps or gets up, the seed, uh, the seed sprouts and grows, though he does not know how. And by itself the soil produces grain, first the stalk and then the head and then the, the full kernel in the head. As soon as the grain is ripe, he puts the sickle to it because the harvest has come. And again, 
Jesus said, what should we say about the kingdom of God? What parable should we use to describe it? Um, it's like a mustard seed, which is the smallest of all seeds of the earth, yet when planted, it grows and becomes the largest of all garden plants with such big branches and the birds of the air perch in its shade. Okay, these parables teach us at least two things about the power of God's revelation and about the power of God's word. First of all, the gospel is life. The gospel is life. It's the power of life. You could put it that way. And secondly, we're going to learn that Christianity or the gospel is the power to grow. It's the power that keeps us growing and keeps us dynamic and not static. This power that comes into our lives is the power of your life, of life. It's an organic power. That's why he's using this metaphor. That's why he's using a seed and soil. It's organic power. It's living power. It's the the revelation of God. It's not only a light. It's a seed that's planted. That's or the parable that I didn't read. It's scattered about. The the picture is of a farmer just throwing seed, throwing it, throwing it, throwing. It's it's available. It's thrown out there, right? But then secondly, it's the power of growth because. I'm just getting really down to the real simple metaphor here. Seeds grow. I mean, that's anytime that Jesus gives you a metaphor, I would encourage you just start super simple. Seed. What do seeds do? They grow. I mean, just get into it, and it'll build. It'll build from there. So Christianity is growing power, not explosive power necessarily. Let's split hairs here a little bit. Let's get into semantics. Christianity is growing power, not explosive power. Seeds don't explode. They ooze. They work. They take time. They grow, right? But they're powerful nonetheless. It's not the power of dynamite. It's not a chemical kind of a power. It's an organic thing, Jesus is saying. That's what my reveal is. That's what the power of my word is. It's an organic, growing power. So I just said it all. Let me, let me break it down. First, the power of, of God's re- revelation is the power of new life. Uh, this metaphor teaches us that being a Christian has got to be more than getting a set of new ideals, first of all, right? This metaphor has got to teach us that at least. Being a Christian has got to be more than a, a set of beliefs. Although you do need a set of beliefs, Christianity is not about a philosophy. It has a philosophy, but it's not a, it's, it's not a philosophy in its, in its essence. Christianity has got to be more than just being forgiven. As wonderful as being forgiven for our sins is, that's really great and wonderful. But it's got to be more than that. Being a Christian or entering the kingdom of God, or having the kingdom of God enter you, I guess since we'll use the metaphor of a seed, means to be raised, to grow, and to be raised into a new order of life, a new being. And you can see this in the metaphor that Jesus uses. You have here a seed that goes into dirt. Now, if you don't stop, if you don't stop to consider um, you might think that dirt is, is uh, lifeless, it, that it's, there's nothing in it, but that's actually not true. Um, those of you that, know the, that study these types of things or gardeners or those types of things, real dirt or good, good dirt, the good stuff, um, it can grow things because it's already filled with organic chemical constructs that make it a healthy environment for, for seeds to grow. It's organic. It's got lots of stuff in there that is conducive to life. But when you introduce, and this is why Jesus spends so much time before this talking about the different soils that the seed falls on. In other words, the soil of your heart is not a dead thing. It means something. It matters. There's, it's, it's a relationship, and we'll get into this in our, in our next point, the, the really complicated interplay between God's revelation and our hearts. The seed has a part to play, and the soil has a part to play. Very important for us to understand that. But the good, the good stuff is filled with organic life. What does it mean? It means that it starts as a seed. Revelation starts as a word. It starts as a seed. It starts as an idea. That's what Jesus is saying. And the Bible in other places tells us what this seed is. First Peter chapter 1, verse 23 says, You have been born again 
You have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living, it's alive, organic, through the living and enduring, what's the seed? Peter says, the living and enduring word of God. You see how the two are the same? James chapter 1 verse 18 says he chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be the first fruits of his creation. You're you're getting the whole agrarian theme here going on. John chapter 3 says unless you are born of the spirit you cannot enter the kingdom of God. 2 Peter chapter 1 says, through his great and very precious promises, you are participating in the divine nature, and so you escape the corruption that is in this world. See, all of these scriptures are saying the same thing. They're all saying the same thing. What it means to be a Christian is not to to get forgiveness. That's part of it. And it's not to receive ideals or adopt principles or, or to, now I, I used to believe this, but now I believe this. To become a Christian is to be born new. It's a birth. It's to be born again. That's the idea. And to be born again, it means to receive into your soil eternal life. The seed of revelation. The word of God that's been that God is casting out to anybody, whoever has ears to hear, whoever has eyes to see, whoever has it, to be born again is to take that in and it germinates and it, you, and it becomes a living thing. You become new. You are, you are born. Okay? Now, uh, it's to receive a seed from the outside. Second Peter calls it the Spirit of God. We read in Second Peter chapter 1, he calls it the divine nature. He's all talking about the the same thing. The life substance of God in some way comes in from the outside and breaks through your heart. If you don't have an experience like that or or many experiences like that or maybe put it this way, a story like that. your, Your salvation story is not I discovered something inside myself. The salvation story is I was groping about in the dark And sure, I saw some things that were probably pointing me to God through natural revelation and general revelation, but I was tripping around and groping in the dark, and something from the outside beamed in on me. Light came into me, seed was cast into me, and it went in, and and I was born again. That's what's happening. And all of our stories, no matter what the details are, they have that in common. This wasn't something I discovered. This is something that discovered me. The gospel isn't something that I grasped. It's something that grasped me. It got me. It got a hold of me. And I became new. That's the kind of power he's talking about. The life substance of God in some way comes in from the outside and breaks in. Now what does it mean to be born again? A lot of people think that to be born again, a born again Christian is like a kind of Christianity. Like there's Catholics, there's Pentecostals, and then there's the born-again type. (laughs) But according to the Bible, um, it's the only Christian there is, are those that are born again. Without without it, there's not power, there's just word only. And I want you to know, and we talked about this a little bit last week, um, the idea that we can be Christians in word but not in power is a foreign idea to the Bible. We've created in our culture a way to be a Christian and not be a follower of Jesus. And that is an alien idea. Because the very nature of seed is organic power. It has to grow. It's not a thing to say I'm a Christian because I believe all the stuff and yet not have some kind of organic changing power going on in your life. Um... Let me summarize and get back to it for more detail. A person who has eternal life sees things that before you didn't know were there. Like divine realities. This this is something that we should all, this is a good litmus test. We should all have this in common. We We see things that we didn't know were there before. In other words, the holiness of God now makes a lot, it's not just a concept, but it makes sense to us. We see it. Ah. The love of God 
Much different than saying, oh, God is love and God loves us, and we know that academically. No, now we see it. I see it where I didn't see it before. God loves me. There's love, and it's all around. It's a light that's shining. It's everywhere. I didn't see it before, but now I see it. The substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. It's not just a concept that you can say, oh yeah, Christian, there's this thing called Christianity who believe in the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. No, you see it for yourself. Jesus was substituted on my behalf. He died the death I should have died and lived the life I should have lived. There was a substitution that went on and my whole eternity and life and being depends on it. Heaven and hell, judgment, those are living realities for the Christian. We don't just believe them conceptually. We believe them as a, as a form of reality. These are, things, these are things that we see. They're there. And maybe we couldn't see them before. We might have known about them before. We might have had a general knowledge of them before. But now we know them, see. They were just ideas. Maybe phantoms in a sense before. Maybe they were boring. Maybe they were even nonsensical to you. But when you get eternal life, you go, oh, now I see. Now I get it. Okay? Okay, secondly, you have the ability to break habits that you were never able to break before. See, before you, you, got, into etern you got into eternal life or eternal life got into you, before you, you experienced that life, there's all sorts of ways in which you, you feel like a slave. whether it's whatever it might be, uh, alcohol or, or um, uh, ambition, workaholism, uh, whatever it might be, habits that you weren't able to break. But slowly, sometimes quickly, <laughs> you find yourself able to do things that you weren't able to do before. That's a hallmark of being a Christian, that the seed is inside you. There's a growing change it might be slow but it's happening you can break habits that you couldn't break before and then finally thirdly your feelings come alive you're able to feel you can feel the love of god maybe not all the time but you know it you know it and it's more than a it's more than a know it it's like a, a know it i know my dad loves me let me tell you something. It's, it's wonderful to have a dog love you. <laughs> that gets something in there for you. But it's nothing like having a spouse love you. And that's, and that's altogether different to having a child love you and you to love a child. But none of those are anything compared to knowing that God loves you and sensing that God is love and that he loves you particularly, specifically. Nothing compares to that. Your heart was built for the love of God. Your heart was built for it. Not just to believe it. Not just to think about it. Not until it's shed abroad in your heart do you know what your feelings were, were built for. And your feelings, they, they, they were meant to serve the truth. Not the truth meant to serve your feelings. So your feelings don't always tell the truth, but when they are subservient to the truth, they come in line with the truth and they can rejoice in the truth. You experience a whole new order of life, a whole new order of, 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 of living. Have we experienced that? In other words, what Paul is saying, what Peter is saying, what Mark is saying, in our, in our, what Jesus is trying to say here is that being a Christian is to have the foundations of your life completely shaken and transformed it's new life becoming a christian is a um, inside out absolute change has that happened okay secondly this is the power it's organic power it's hidden it's gradual but it's the power to change it's the power of secret growth isn't that what we all want i, I tell you i want that i run up against myself and i think man i want to be different I want change. I want real change. I don't, I'm not satisfied with who I am. I'm not satisfied with where I am. I want to keep moving and changing. This is the secret to it. This reveal, this light that's being shined out. This is the secret. The seed, very simply, it's very logical, seed grow. 
It's very interesting because the power of the, uh, the power of a seed is almost deceptive. It's almost deceptive. For example, the mustard seed is a very, very, very small, which is the reason Jesus um, is probably using it for an example. It's much smaller than an acorn, much smaller than a walnut, much smaller than something that would, that would grow a tree. Most seeds that grow trees are a lot bigger. And Jesus, so Jesus shows the tiniest seed that you wouldn't ever think would, would, something would grow out of it. Um, now let me ask you, if a mustard seed had a head-on collision with a slab of concrete, what would, who would win? The concrete every time, right? Absolutely. But we know that if you stick a seed underneath a sidewalk and give it a few years, that sidewalk will crack. My whole neighborhood's filled with cracked uh, sidewalks from tree roots. That's the power of gradual growth, and that's going on in you. The seed is organic. It brings out life. The slab of concrete is inorganic. So the seed is a higher form of being than the inorganic life of the concrete. It's higher form, which means it's powerful. Take it from me. In some cases, growth is slow. (laughs) Nicole's like, preach. When she... Sure, she's, she's witnessed it for the past, or not witnessed it maybe for the past 20 years. It's slow going, but it's there nonetheless. I read uh, that G. Campbell Morgan um, once went to Italy in Rome and saw a 600-year-old tombstone. And there was a huge slab of marble over the grave, but an acorn must have been dropped inside before they closed the lid thousands of years ago because this huge oak tree has cracked through the, the lid and growing right through, right through the grave, right through death itself. That little acorn. And Morgan, uh, G. Campbell Morgan said that he wrote about this. He said that he suddenly realized that if God could put that kind of power in a gradual biological growth in an acorn, think about how much gradual potential I have in me. Think about how much gradual potential you have in you. God's life has been planted in you, and whatever your problems are, you guys, whatever your problems are, if you're willing to keep watering that acorn and weeding out the weeds in your heart and tilling the soil and exposing yourself and having ears to hear and eyes to see, if you're willing to keep doing that, then then eventually life is going to crack through those, those dead places in your life. See, people are, expecting, people are expecting like a collision with Christianity. And we kind of cater to that. We have these crusades and concerts and smoke and lights and all of those types of things. And we kind of give this impression that life with God is like a collision. Boom, explosion, and poof, all this stuff. The Bible does not describe it that way. It's power, but it's an organic, gradual Strong power. Instead, we have the hidden power of the kingdom of God. What does this mean? It means the way that you know that you're a Christian is not necessarily that all your problems have cracked and fallen away. I mean, that's right? Unless I'm the only one that still has problems in the room? Being a Christian, this is good news for me because I used to think when I became a Christian, I used to think uh, there's something really wrong with me because I still have a lot of really big problems. In fact, I became a Christian so young that most of my problems came out after I was already a Christian. And so that was super confusing (laughs) because I walked into my Christianity going, I shouldn't have any problems and yet they're they're being revealed. There's more there than I ever knew. Thank God that this description doesn't fit that. Being a Christian does not necessarily mean that all of our problems have cracked off. It may take a while for that mustard seed to destroy that sidewalk, that death, but it will. It will. In light of this, what could be so bad? Let me ask yourself this. What could be so bad in your life? What habits are so entrenched in your life that you think God cannot root them out? In light of what we're, we're, what's being described here. If you feel weak, well, of course you do. 
you're just dirt <laughs> in the metaphor. I'm, I'm, I don't mean, I mean, metaphorically speaking, you're just dirt. <laughs> you guys are like, where's the comment cards? You pull out your Yelp review. The pastor called me dirt. You can't achieve the kind of life you want, but when Jesus puts the seed in you, power. There's power in you, and you're growing. How do you know that you're growing? Well, you'll be, you'll be growing in the way you act, you'll grow in the way you think, and you'll grow in the way you feel, like we already talked about. Those things, and not necessarily equally at the same time. Sometimes the way we think is just, woo, and then the way we feel is, slowly catching up other times other people are like i feel it i don't really know what i i don't really i couldn't articulate it i don't i couldn't argue it but i feel it and it's real and then our minds catch up but we're growing it's pretty simple um finally I want to look at the mystery, the, this mysterious interplay between the word and the human heart this is and i, I this is, um, this may be tricky, but I think you'll see it. Look at verse 24. He says, then he said to them, take heed what you hear. This is really weird. With the same measure you use, it will be measured to you. And to, um, and to you who hear, more will be given. For whoever has, this is interesting, to whoever has, to him it will be given, um, even what he, oh, and, but whatever does, whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. What in the world is that? Really interesting here. Jesus is, is, Jesus, because of the importance of God's word and the reveal, the revelation, he's cluing us into something when he says, take heed what you hear. Or you could say, take heed how you hear. In other words, the disposition of your heart has something to do with how you grow, how you receive, and what happens. We have a part to play in this. There's a relationship. There's a complex interplay going on between God's spirit and God's revelation and, and how we choose to process it and how we choose to receive it. Pay attention to the voice of God. Here Jesus is stressing an attitude of attention and of straining to listen. That should be the attitude of your heart when we're reading our Bible, when we're walking through life, when we're tasting food, when we're, we're listening. We, have a, a, we want more of this reveal. We want to be in this light. I'm blocking out certain frequencies and straining to hear others. When I'm watching movies, I'm looking for the word of God. I'm looking for the things that God is revealing to me. When I'm reading books, when I, when I listen to my friends, when I'm listening to music, all of those things. And when I have that kind of an attitude, when I'm approaching life with this receiving attitude, more will be given. I'm going to see it. There is part of that. And it's complex. If I, if, so, if I go, have you heard of self-fulfilled prophecies? If I go to my Bible expecting not to hear anything from God, chances are I probably won't. Because even what I have will be taken from me. But if I go to my Bible wanting to see, give me more, I know you're speaking, you said you're speaking. All the time you're revealing, I, I want to receive it. If you go into life like that, the more you will get, the more you will receive. If you go to an event expecting it to be crappy, you probably will find reasons to confirm your belief. If you go to a church expecting it to be not that great, you will find reasons there to, to confirm that belief. And you may not come back because even what you have in some cases will be taken from you. You'll stop reading the Bible. You'll stop listening altogether because you don't expect it. And it becomes a really slippery slope. Maybe we blame the preacher or we blame the music or whatever it might be. Attitude's important. 
The soil of your heart is important. This is what you... So, so there's a great illustration of this that I don't have time to really go through with you in detail. I, maybe someday I will. But um, you remember in the Old Testament, in the book of Exodus, in Exodus chapter 4, verse... It's either 12 or 21. You know, dyslexics untie. Um, unite. Untie. Forget it. Um, anyways, in Exodus 21 or 12... Um, God makes this really interesting statement to Moses. He says, go to Israel, demand to Pharaoh to let my people go, but I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart so that he won't. And you read that and you go, what in the world is that all about? Go tell him to let my people go, and yet I'm going to harden his heart so that he won't. And if you, if you read it and you categorize it from chapter 4 or that point on all the way through chapter 12 there's actually a series of phrases of hardened heart hardened heart hardened heart and a handful of them are pharaoh hardened his own heart a handful of them are god hardened pharaoh's heart and the problem is we come to places like this in the bible and we come to life like this thinking it's one or the other it's this oversimplification did god do it or did pharaoh do it and if you read the Bible, the, it's more complex than that. The answer is yes to both. God said he would do it, and he does it. But Pharaoh also is hardening his own heart. Um, but here's what it can't mean. Well, here's what it does mean. There's an interplay, a really complex interplay between God and Pharaoh's heart. God commands Pharaoh ten times through Moses to let his people go. Ten times. Now look, God could have just, what, what could God have done? God could have just killed Pharaoh. He would have been completely, Pharaoh was, was uh, Pharaoh in, in Exodus, good guy or bad guy? Bad guy. Really bad, genocidal maniac. <laughs> you know, really narcissist the whole way, megalomaniac. God could have just squished him and let his people go. The only explanation that God is asking him ten times is God is gracing him. He's giving him a chance. In fact, and twice, Pharaoh says, okay, fine, I will, let my pe- I will let your people go. He reneges, he takes it back. But you can see his heart is in this play, in this interchange between him and God. There's times where he says, okay, yes, I will. In fact, one time, Pharaoh says, I will let your people go to go out into the wilderness. And he says to Moses, and while you're there, pray for me. In other words, Pharaoh wasn't fooling. He meant it in that moment. Pray for me. If you rewind, the first time Pharaoh says, Yahweh who? In other words, politically speaking, I'm not going to bow down and serve the God of slaves. I'm not doing that. No way am I doing that. I don't do that. I I, I worship my own God or gods. I am a God. I don't worship the, the God of slaves. And then by the time, I think it's like the seventh or eighth plague... Pharaoh goes, okay, fine, you guys can go. And would you pray for me, please? And then he hardens his heart again. He takes it back. And here's the point. It's more complex. There is a complex relationship going on between our heart and the revelation of God. God is so gracious to Pharaoh that he gives him ten chances to repent. But at some point... God uses the momentum that's already, that Pharaoh chose to be in his heart. The hardness, the stubbornness that Pharaoh kept putting into his own heart. God knew it was going to happen back in chapter 4, verse 21 or 12, depending on wherever it is. God knew it was going to happen. He called it in advance, but then chapters 4 through 12 is how it actually played itself out in a complex, really interwoven relationship. God knew how it was going to end, but he gives him chance after chance after chance after chance. And finally, God says, all right, I'm going to solidify what's already there. I'm going to harden your heart because it's done. This is what Jesus is referring to here when he says, what you bring to Revelation determines what you're going to, to a degree, to a degree, not one or the other, but in some kind of mysterious interplay, 
the ingredients that you bring to this revelation that's being poured out for everyone to see, the attitude, the affect, those things, the the doubts, the, the beliefs, all of that interplay that you bring has some kind of effect, some kind of Uh, interaction between how revelation sits in your heart and how you are therefore growing as well it's both are you following me does that make sense it's a great way of putting it yes i mean i would nuance it a little bit but basically yes absolutely god knows what's there and what you bring that's what's going to be met back with you. That's what Jesus is saying. What you bring. And that's why Jesus is, this is why, this is the entire purpose of Jesus' parable speaking. He speaks in parables. Notice, in Matthew it says the same thing. He speaks in parables. Some people go away going, what the heck? Other people come to him afterwards and say, can you explain it? And it says he explained everything to them. He gave to those that brought more. To those that walked away, it was lost on some of them. Others maybe it, others maybe it germinated for a little bit, and then it, and, and there you've got the parable of the sower, the different types of things. The, that's right. The promise is there. So that, perfect, Renee, that brings me to my final point. How, how do I enter into the revelation of God? What is the ingredients that I come with and, and I'll, I want to see if you guys can get that. I mean, Renee already nailed it. What, is, what, is the, what makes Jesus excited throughout all the Gospels? What makes him the most happy when he finds it? Faith. Faith. Um, pistis in the, in the Greek language. Uh, most scholars are saying the best word for it is trust. It's to trust him. One final scripture for you and then we're done. Hebrews 3 and 4. It's a warning. It's basically what Renee was just saying. It's a warning from Hebrews chapter 3 and 4. The writer to the Hebrews says, Be careful, lest some of you have an evil heart of unbelief, um, apisteia, non-belief, that you have an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. And then he compares us or the people he's writing to, to the ancient Israelites. And you know what he says? He says, those Israelites that were walking around in the wilderness, they had good news. In other words, God had, um, God had given them a, a, the good news, but it didn't benefit them because it wasn't mixed with pistis, with faith, with trust. And he, he says to us, you also have gotten good news, but, with, but the good news, the seed that's being shed for everybody, the light that's not to be hidden, all of it's going out in the world, it does you no good if you don't have faith. If you don't receive it. It's still being given. It's for all. It's for everyone. But if we don't meet it with faith, the writer of the Hebrews says, it does, it does you no good. They stayed in the wilderness. They died in the wilderness. And then the writer of the Hebrews says, therefore, while it is called today, enter into his rest by faith. There still remains a rest for the children of God. In other words, we're invited in all the time. How do we access, what's the door that gets us into the rest, the Sabbath of God? It's faith, or I like to say it better, trust. Trust. The righteous shall live by trust. The righteous shall live by trust. I oh, you see what that is? Trust, um, noble. Trust me. He he's always receiving from Nicole and I. If I could describe a posture of noble in our house, it is receive, trust. You're going to feed me. You're going to do what's right for me. You're going to do what I need to do. I trust you. And he lives from that. He lives from that. Become like a trust. So you see, it's a way of being. I come to the Bible and I trust that God's speaking. 
I go outside and I trust that God's speaking to me. I watch a movie and I trust that the, something's in there from the Lord. I read, I interact with my friends. I go to church and I trust, not because the band is good or the pastor is great or this and that and the other thing. I go because of God and I'm going with an attitude of yes. I go on my bus and I'm looking for him. It's an attitude of where? Trust, trust, trust. And let me read it again. Take heed how you hear what you hear. Take heed what you hear. With the same measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And to you who hear, to you who hear, more will be given. To you that have an attitude, a posture of hearing, more will be given. You'll be blown away. It won't just be for Mike and other people and, and this more, you know, the... the the upper level Christians. It will be for you, anyone. Whoever has ears to hear, let him hear. But whoever has, to more will be given. But whoever does not have, or you could say whoever is not hearing, even what they have will be taken from them. It's it's the warning of Hebrews, you guys. It's the warning of Hebrews chapter 3 and 4. Believe. There's an interplay going on in your heart between you and revelation, this divine power, this personal force, even before it was inscripturated, this conversation between you and God. Every second, every moment God is speaking. Are you, are you receiving it? Do you have that heart? Let's pray and let's stand. Lord, I need to come before you and repent because I often come to you and come at life with a glasses half empty type of way of looking at things. I don't expect to see you. I don't expect to hear from you. And so I walk around groping about in the dark sometimes, stubbing my toe and running into other people, hurting other people. But Lord, I pray that we could grow and the way that we tend our soil is to believe, is to expect, is to receive, is to trust and so, Lord, I, I ask that you'd forgive me, and I want to repent, and I want to have a trusting, receiving attitude in mind towards you. Because you've promised, when I hear you like that, more will be given to me, and I want more. I want more of it. I want more. Jesus, I want all that you have for me. I don't want to stay the same And I pray that same attitude for my friends. I pray for an, un, an unsatisfaction. That would spur us on to move towards growth and seeking you. Or as Augustine said, to have found you but still be looking for you. Is that paradox?